I'm Mark Golub, and in the news, discussions surrounding the upcoming Israeli election, which will take place on November 1st of this year, and I'm sure many of you know this will be the fifth time Israeli people will go to the polls trying to create an outcome in which it will be possible for some Israeli politician and political party to create a viable coalition government with a total of 61 or more seats for the 120-seat Israeli parliament, the Knesset. The last four Israeli national elections have failed to produce a sustainable coalition government, and truth be told, there's no guarantee that this fifth election will yield better results. We'll have to wait and see. And to help us understand some of the backstories that animate this coming Israeli election, I have the great joy and honor to be sitting with a man whom I believe knows more about Israeli politics as well as other aspects of Israeli life than any other American Jew. He's a Sabra, a native Israeli, he obtained his law degree from Bar-Ilan University and then served the State of Israel for 16 years in the Israeli diplomatic corps, stationed in various Israeli consulates around the world, and who I'm thrilled to say now serves as JBS's senior vice president. You know him well from his own JBS series, Ion Israel. He also hosts many in the news segments and he participates in many JBS specials. And I'm very excited to tell you about his special assignment for JBS. We'll do that toward the end of the program. It's always a treat to be sitting with Shakar Azani. And Shakar, I have to tell you, there were so many people who communicated to me that our last discussion about Israeli politics was eye-opening. Right. And, you know... American Jews don't know Israeli politics. And many Israeli Jews, many, I'm sorry, many American Jews will read here, here, they'll read there. No one is able to put it in a package like you. And I got wonderful feedback. I hope you did too. And it's wonderful to be able to do part two right. of our discussion today, now about the upcoming Israeli election, which as we're taping, it's only a few weeks away. Right. Mark, it's always a joy to sit together and discuss this quagmire of a topic, but be able to wrap it nicely for our viewers to really understand not just what's at stake, but what is the machination behind these elections. Yes. And we call it a vote to you, so, and it's wonderful to be sitting with you. All right, so I want to begin by asking you a question I did not ask you in our first program. And... It occurred to me it would be interesting for our audience to hear what you have to say. American Jewry is here in the United States, and yet they're very interested in the Israeli election. Right. But I don't, under, I don't know if they understand why it matters. What matters about the Israeli election for American Jews? The Israeli election for American Jews. So if somebody said to you, 
why should I care? I'm an American Jew. You know, have a nice time. What's your answer? Well, I think, especially now, Mark, we live at a time where anti-Semitism is rampant. And much of that anti-Semitic language revolves around the state of Israel, the Jewish state of Israel. So we see that this anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism go really hand in hand, since for so many of these haters of the Jewish community, Israel is uh, you know, the political scapegoat. I'm only politically criticizing Israel. It's nothing to do with the fact that it's a Jewish state. I'm just happen to be negating yes, yes. the only, you know, right of the Jewish people for the state of their own. So a projection of a stable state of Israel is a projection of Jewish power on world stage. And that comes to knock on the door of each and every Jew, because a strong state of Israel is a strong Jewish people and a strong Jewish community that can counter anti-Semitism and Jew hatred, not just in the United States, but globally around the world. And there is another layer here, because Israel's election is important, not just for the Jewish community, but I dare say for the United States in general. Yes. Because when you look into what's happening today in the Ukraine, where Iranian drones are being used against the Ukraine by Russia, when Iranian power destabilizes regionally all across from Yemen to Lebanon to Syria to Iraq, you understand that a strong and stable state of Israel is a strong and stable American bastion in the Middle East, American ally, the strongest partnership ever that really comes to knock at the door of not every American Jew, but every American. Mm -hmm. Look. I mentioned you served for 16 years right. in the Israeli diplomatic corps. Right. You understand the subtleties of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Right. Does the United States care? For, you know, does the American administration care what the outcome of this election is? I think it's clear um, from understanding the nature of the uh, both, you know, President Biden and many people within the Democratic establishment. They've had a lot of experience with yes. former Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think it's fair to assume that uh, not everybody in the Democratic establishment is eager, excited, uh, and filled with joy thinking about the idea of dealing with Netanyahu again. So it matters to the administration. It does. And that's another reason for American jury to care. Right. And one last point, and you tell me if this resonates with you. You know... But, but wait, Mark, it's also important to note, Israel, Israel's existence and role as a strategic ally to the U.S. makes no difference between administrations. Like, for the, for the United States of America to have a strong and stable Israel in an, in an area so volatile between on the axis between Iran and Saudi Arabia means a lot. So yes, they will be more comfortable dealing with A rather than B, but Israel still stands as a strong American beacon in that area, regardless of okay, which leader. I, I want to push you here. Push me. Because... The sense we've had as American Jews is that when Donald Trump was president of the United States, there was a different relationship between the U.S. and Israel. There seemed to be, and I hope we'll talk about this in a moment, Trump did not criticize Bibi for four years. Suddenly, we hear Trump mumbling and grumbling about Bibi. And he's upset with Bibi Netanyahu. But for four years while he was president, 
there, you know, people say, oh, there's finally no daylight between the U.S. and Israel. And then Biden becomes president, and he has been known to be a good friend of Israel, and yet he's come under criticism. And we're doing a show coming up where we're going to have people react to the trip he took to Israel. And some of the things he did on that trip, which Israelis felt were insulting. He didn't want the Israeli flag on, a, on his car when he went to East Jerusalem. He didn't bring an Israeli with him when he went to East Jerusalem. He didn't visit the Western Wall. And there were people who say, yes, in the general sense, Biden is a friend of Israel, but he's made mistakes that are troubling. And so when you say it doesn't matter what the administration is, the U.S. commitment to Israel and Israel's strategic position in the Middle East will be important to either. They, at the same time, Shachar, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong or if you think the pundits are wrong. Uh, many people were unhappy with Obama's articulation of the relationship between the U.S. and Israel. Then here comes Trump, and there are people who say he's the best president the state of Israel ever had, and now we have Biden, and there's some discomfort. So my own feeling is that what happens in this election will affect the way, even if it's subtle, the American administration deals with Israel, and what I wanted you to comment on, the state of Israel relies to one degree or another on American aid, Correct. military aid. Correct. It's financial aid, but it's mostly in terms of selling to Israel. Selling, not giving. Right. Selling to Israel right. arms. And uh, there's a question as to, you know, the... Jewish community, the American Jewish community, is seen to be a lobbying force on behalf of the state of Israel. And you and I are annoyed when American Jews don't seem to appreciate that role and to be stepping back from that role. But I'm wondering whether American Jews are all, should be interested in this election because ultimately they're being asked to use their influence, not necessarily their dollars, that's a separate issue, right. their, inf their political influence to influence the American administration. Right. And the election will color how some American Jews view Israel. Correct. And how, I believe it, how the American administration will view Israel. Correct. Speak to that. Well, you know, at the end of the day, there are different approaches. And like you said so eloquently, even with Trump, at, during the time, the perception was that there was complete union, uh, and they speak in one voice between, you know, the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration. But then, you know, a few years later, you read this, you read about this in this book, or that book, or this interview. Trump wasn't so happy with Bibi. Bibi wasn't so happy with Trump. They did agree, they didn't agree, because at the end of the day, it comes down to 
the people. And when you have a certain prime minister, let's say you, you were talking about President Obama. President Obama famously had, you know, butting heads with Prime Minister Netanyahu at the time. And that was quite evident that there was not just, you know, daytime, nighttime. There was so much time in between the two personalities. So all I'm saying is there are different approaches. And you're absolutely correct. And there is a level of comfort and discomfort with individuals. But the bottom line is... And this is also goes back to the point we just discussed. Israel is important to American national security. Israel is vital. You said so eloquently a point that is hidden from the eye. There is no financial aid to Israel. There is support with military transactions in which U.S. dollars are being given to Israel and then used again within the American military complex mm -hmm. to support jobs within that complex that at the same time will support American interests in the region. And the United States knows very well whether they're comfortable with it or not, whether they put a flag on their car or not, who <laughs> they can count on when it comes to Israel, who they can rely on if American interests are in danger. And the state of Israel knows the same as well, whether it's Netanyahu, Lapid, or Bennett. Okay. And this is a digression. We'll keep it very short. Right. Did it bother you that Biden didn't want the Israeli flag when he went to East Jerusalem? Yes, it did bother me a little bit because uh, I think that as president he could have shown a little more respect to the eternal capital of the state of Israel and to what Jerusalem means to us all. At the same time, you know, political advice can go in different directions and he took a wrong advice at the, at the time, just like President Obama made what I view to be a significant error right at the beginning of his term when he chose to visit the region by going to Cairo and making his speech at the university there and then instead of coming to Israel, going to Germany to a concentration camp and, you know, visiting that aspect of, you know, the Holocaust existence in Israel history while skipping Israel. Presidents, prime ministers, you and I, Mark, and everyone else, we make mistakes. This was a mistake, whether it's a strategic mistake that's going to derail Israel-U.S. relations. No. 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 But like you say, it's different approaches. And mm -hmm. I think that President Biden knows very well, and the American administration knows very well, the value and the importance of the state of Israel, no matter what you hear on the outside. Very nice. All right, we come back to the Israeli election. Right. I want to go through some of the major political figures in Israel. And when I say major, it's not only that they're major in Israel, they're known to American Jews. Right. And not every politician is known to American Jews. Right. And some are minor figures, although they're ascending. Some are very well-known names. And they're descending. Right. And you and I have spoken off camera. It's amazing how political fortunes change so dramatically, so quickly. Right. You know, in one election, a given politician is the opposition. Wait, wait, Mark. Here is a, here is a great one. Naftali Bennett, if you remember that name, somebody who until recently was Israel's prime minister. <laughs> Only what? Two years ago... His party did not pass the electoral threshold in April of 2019, I believe it was, that his party, Anayela Chaked's party, at the time the new right, won 1,454 less votes than the electoral threshold, which meant they didn't even make it to the Knesset. Okay, so and hold lo and on. behold, hold on. two years later, he's prime minister. Okay, hold on. By the way, it's fascinating, but you've touched on something that's in my notes. 
the American political process and the Israeli political process are vastly different. Right. Israel is a parliamentary government and it's a parliamentary system. I want you to take a moment to explain to our audience when Americans go to the polls, they're normally voting for the head of the Democratic or Republican Party. They're voting for Donald Trump or they're voting for Joe Biden or whatever. That doesn't mean that Americans are unaware of the fact that there's a Democratic platform, there's a Republican platform, Correct. there's a philosophy, right. in theory at least, yes. between the two parties that separate them. But still, Americans go in fixated on a person. Now, in Israel, every party has a leader. And to the, some extent, to some extent, the Israeli goes to the polls. He's aware of who the leader is. And that leader colors the way he views the party. Correct. But reality is, they're not voting for a leader. Very true. They're voting for a party. Exactly. And I want you to explain. You've talked about the threshold. Let's talk Many about American threshold. Jews have no idea what you're talking about. Let's do it. This is very important. Take a moment. So let's do some math, Mark. <laughs> Enjoy the quagmire of Israeli elections. And let's understand this idea of a threshold. Like you said very correctly, even though in our minds and in our hearts we say the words Benjamin Netanyahu, yes. Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz. The truth is, like you said, that when Israelis go to the ballot boxes, they don't vote for the individual, they vote for a party. And in doing so, they may be voting for number 35 on the Likud list, whose name they don't even know. There's a list for every a party. List, but it's their vote. Every party has a list of 120 members, because ideally they would own the entire <laughs> right. Knesset. And when you go and vote, your vote may bring in Joseph Shmegegi. But you have no idea who Joseph is. All you do is you go and vote for the party. Now, what is the electoral threshold? The, out of all the people who vote during the elections, you have what we call the legitimate votes and the illegitimate. What's an illegitimate or a, or a canceled vote? If the uh, ballot itself seems to be crumpled, if there is something illegal about the weights there, if the, the envelope is torn and seems to be messed with. So all of these votes, if you put on, let's say, a, a white note and you, you make a stand, that stand goes in the garbage. These votes don't count at all. So then you take all of the proper votes that were done legally and properly and you know everything is sealed properly in the envelope. It's done, you have a certain amount of votes. Now, you take all of these votes, the aggregates. the aggregates, and you do what you call the calculation of the electoral threshold. The Israeli Knesset determined back in 2015 that the electoral threshold should be 3.25% of all of the clear legitimate votes that were cast in the elections. So let's say you have a certain few million votes that were legitimate, the kosher ones, 3.25% presents the minimum number of votes you need to have in order to be part of the Knesset. Okay, and you already said every party has 120 names. Right. If you only get 3.25%, how many names on that list? So wait, the 3.25% gives you the minimum number of votes that you have to have in order to enter the game. 
So now they make the calculation, let's say in those uh, uh, elections back in 2019, that number was 140,000 something. This was the minimum number of votes you have to get all in all in order to be part of the game. Yamin, uh, the new right party that at the time was Bennett and Shaked, it's a great example, lacked 1,400 votes. If they had 1,400 votes more, they would be part of the game because they like, and I remember those images on Israeli TV when they were rummaging through boxes looking for envelopes underneath to see if they can scratch a vote here or a vote there. Mm -hmm. But this is the threshold. Those who come through the threshold will be part of the game, and I'll talk about the game in a minute. Those who don't come through that threshold, their votes become um, out of the equation. And that also has an impact, and I'll talk about this in a minute. So first, electoral threshold is the number of votes you need to have. You have to have a certain number of people vote for you to be part of the game. So for the party. For the party. To be part for of the, the party. Game. For the party, exactly. 140,000, 144,000, depending on the number of kosher votes that there are uh, in those elections. 3.25%. Now there is a second game. And that second game becomes a bit more complicated. Because let's say I pass the electoral threshold. Now how many seats do I get in the Knesset out of the 120? Here comes what we call the mandates. The Knesset seats that are determined how. You take the aggregate number of these votes and you divide them by 120. And that will give you the amount of votes you need to have per seat in the Knesset. Now think about this, Mark. Now dive deep in with me. Think about the kosher votes, right? You take those kosher votes, and this is what you divide, the kosher votes, minus the ones who did not pass the electoral threshold. Okay, let's do it again. We have the electoral threshold that will determine 3.25% of all of the kosher votes of who's going to pass. But the actual seat number is determined not by all of the kosher votes, but by all of the kosher votes for the parties who passed the electoral threshold. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm determining how many seats I have. What does that mean? It means that if a party didn't pass the electoral threshold, the votes that were cast for that party are not going to be counted at all. At all for the seat in the Knesset. Mm -hmm. Now what does that mean? It means that you're going to need less votes to get a seat. Less votes, because if you have the numerator is larger, divided by 120, of course you need more votes. If, you, if you, that number becomes lower because some of these votes are cast aside because those parties didn't pass the threshold, it means you'd need less votes mm -hmm. to get that seat. Mm -hmm. Now, on a fraction of a percentage, imagine between 15.9 is 15 seats, but 16.1 is 16 seats. And there you have Netanyahu's 61st vote, the 61st finger to have in the Knesset. Really? That's exactly how it's going. So the two main, the two main factors I want our viewers to remember for these elections are one, Israeli fatigue. The Israeli public is tired. Oh, talk about that. They have been through these elections. Like you said, this is the fifth round. And it's a question of to be or not to be <laughs> It's the same old, same old. By the way, the bottom line is it's still all about BB. It's still it? all about BB. We talked about that the last time. 
but it's become no less true now. Everything is painted in those colors. There is very little real discussion about the issues, the cost of living, inflation, the gas agreement with Lebanon. All of these are immediately painted in pro-Netanyahu, anti-Netanyahu. And the truth is that there is continuous stagnation. Israeli polls indicate, and get this a surprise, people don't change their minds. The blocks remain the same. So this, this election is going to be won by these fraction of percentages, by how many people actually go to vote. So Netanyahu is fighting for the 300,000 people who, according to his information, are Likud voters, but chose not to go and vote in the last round because ah. they were tired. So his effort is going to be focused on getting them to vote. The Arab parties are going to try and get their public out to vote because there seems to be significant indifference within the Arab uh, uh, public now as far as coming to vote in this upcoming round of the election. So first of all, it's the Israeli public indifference and fatigue with these rounds of elections. And the second thing is what we just talked about, the electoral threshold. If one party doesn't pass the electoral threshold, it means that the votes, even kosher, that were cast in favor of that party are not going to be counted for the seats in the Knesset, which means that somebody who voted for, let's say, an Arab party that didn't pass the electoral threshold, the result, the end result of that vote would be, let's say, 80,000 votes that are going to be thrown in the dustbin, which may end up giving Netanyahu the victory because it's going to be the one between 32.1 and 31.9. Mm -hmm. That's going to be that one seat because this election is going to be won by fractions of percentages. Isn't it fascinating? By the way, is it, in your view, is it a good system? <laughs> I, let's say this. Israel, when we say Israel is a vibrant democracy, <laughs> we are. When we say Israel is a miracle, we are. <laughs> right now, the, if you think about the diversity of opinions in our Jewish community, now take it a hundredfold and go to Israel. Mm -hmm. So for now, it's the best system we have. We have tried other systems. If you remember, Mark, back in the mid-90s, Netanyahu's first term in 1996 was won in personal votes. At the time, Israelis had two, uh, to cast actually two ballots. One was for the party and the other was for the person. So in 1996, Israelis had to choose whether they go for Benjamin Netanyahu for premier or Shimon Peres for premier. And in addition, they voted for a party because at the time we felt that this will help stabilize the government. It actually did the contrary, which led to the, uh, uh, um, it was then, I believe, Prime Minister Sharon at the beginning of the 2000s, revoke and going back to the old system. So I can say that at our young and tender age, we're still experimenting. But we have to understand that this system is going to be translated now to uh, winning by a fraction of percentages to the right and to the left. And maybe, Mark, we can touch a bit about the Arab parties. Yes, we will. We'll, we'll get there. And I want to just make sure people understand. You talked about the denominator. If the number of total votes is smaller, you need a, you need a, you can get into the game with fewer votes. You can get more seats because getting into the game is determined yes. by the threshold. Yes, yes, yes. That's 3.25% of all of the kosher votes. 
the number of seats is determined by the number of the kosher votes of the parties that pass the electoral threshold, mm. divided by 120. Now, if that number is larger, you need more votes to get one seat. If that number is smaller, let's say parties that didn't pass the electoral threshold and then their votes are not counted, you need less votes to get one seat in the Knesset. Okay, last question, then we're going to no, no, get go personalities. I would imagine that those who are in the political business in Israel understand everything you've said. And they also understand how this small fraction can determine another seat or another seat. And therefore, I would imagine the political operatives in Israel are working all the time on how do we get a slight, slightly larger percent, very small, very small, because it'll win us another seat or two. Am I right? You're absolutely right, and I didn't even take you, Mark, to the <laughs> quagmire of all quagmires, because at the end of the day, even though 16.1 seats is 16 seats, what do you do with the point one? Well, there is a system in place, which I'm not going to get into, <laughs> because you're going to get such a headache. Okay, but there right. is a system in place one to, day, divide, one day. <laughs> to divide all of these. And, you know, God save you from all of that. But you, you, there is a, a system in place to divide all of these fraction of votes, and that's what's going to determine the election. It's going to be Yossi, who didn't go to vote in Beersheba, yes. who's going to crown Benjamin Netanyahu <laughs> as Prime Minister of Israel. Because that one vote is going to change the denominator. Because that one vote that didn't come right. is going to change the denominator. Yeah. All right. I said I want to talk about personalities. Let's okay. Um, <laughs> let's stay with Netanyahu for a minute. Sure. Okay. And, by the way, he always seems to be in the eye of the political storm. In other words, he is, the, he, you know, when you think of Perez, and you think of Rabin, and you think of some of the Sharon. They were all controversial figures, but not the one that Netanyahu was controversial. And there was even an event that you and I spoke about before we went on camera in which uh, it's just, <laughs> who would imagine this scenario at a stage uh, and who's on the stage and who's not on the stage and that's part of the story right now about the Israeli election that we're about to go into. Tell us that story. Let's, let's talk about, you know, you're right to shed a light onto the longest serving Israeli premier, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is exuding so much youth in these elections that he is outshining his rivals right and left. Like his energy and devotion is like a, a, a kid who just entered politics. And it's quite incredible to see. Now, the event you're talking about is the post-Sukkot celebration, where the leader of Jewish power party, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who did not pass the electoral threshold for many years, who has been at the very outskirts of Israeli politics, who has been considered to be ultra, ultra, ultra right-wing for so many years, and in the past couple of years, has been going through such a process of legitimization that his party, along with someone else, Bezalel Smutrich of the religious Zionist movement, 
may become the third largest party in the Knesset after Likud and Lapid's Yeshatid, the religious Zionist party. And I'm talking about Itamar Ben-Gvir. Itamar Ben-Gvir, by the way, whose controversial figure um, made appearances on Israeli TV and media for many years. One of his most notable ones was when, as a teenager, he was holding the um, Rabin car's, um, a plastic part of Rabin's car, showing that if we got to this, we can get to him. And it was like days before the Prime Minister was assassinated. So we're talking about somebody who's really controversial, to say the least. And yet at the post-Sukkot event, he is on stage, and Netanyahu is supposed to come and address the crowd. And make no mistake, there is a continuous show of alliance between the religious Zionist party and Likud party. Like, it's clear that they're going to be part, potentially, of, of any Netanyahu coalition. And yet, Netanyahu, with his sharp political instincts, as he comes to the stage, refuses to come on stage for as long as Mr. Ben-Gvir is on stage. Because? And is demanding of the organizers that he's removed because he doesn't want his picture to be taken alongside Ben-Gvir to be used by his adversaries to show the great <laughs> boogeyman of Israel. So Netanyahu has to... This is his ally. This is somebody who everybody understands is going to be part of his coalition, and yet it's such an embarrassment for him because he's trying to navigate the stormy waters between the Ben-Gvir supporting group and the traditional uh, orthodox, let's call them, Likud voters, who are not the moderate right, who are not so happy with liaising with what seemed to them as the extreme right. So it's a very interesting and delicate you know, balance. Wow. When Netanyahu, in his sharp political instinct, still at his age, being able to think about the picture, right? You, Mark, you know best, better than anyone, the value of a photo and a picture and an image, of what Netanyahu is willing to do and not to do and pay the price for because he's able to, you know, balance it out and say this is the worthwhile path. I think it tells a story of somebody who is a great maven of Israeli spirit and Israeli politics who understand the nature of the Israeli constituents and um, it's a great reason why he's referred to as the grand wizard of Israeli politics. Mm -hmm. Is Ben Gavir the individual who is likened to Mayor Kahana. Yes, um, participating in various ceremonies. Over, even, even though in the last couple of years he's supposedly disavowed it and I'm no longer there, but for many years he was famous for ha having the picture of uh, uh, Baruch Goldstein in his living room, uh, the perpetrator of the uh, massacre um, in the, the mosque, mosque. the mosque uh, in Purim. Um, he also attended, you know, various uh, events in memory of Rabbi Kahana. But at the same time, some of his friends in the ultra-right wing came out a few weeks ago claiming that he became a moderate. And now he shouldn't be viewed as extreme right because he, he, he's no longer loyal to our path. He's made compromises. So, you know, Israeli politics is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And even without the numbers, like you say, the personalities, each of them takes you on a different path through the dark forest. Uh, Ultimately, how does Gavir get off stage? Um, he's uh, persuaded by, by uh, four rabbis. He's being actually, literally, you can see him protesting a little bit, but he's being accompanied off stage before Netanyahu comes up, uh, physically. Have you had any opportunity, and maybe the answer is no, have you had any opportunity to talk to Israelis about, I mean, Israelis in Israel, about how that event 
has been perceived? Well, I, I did have an opportunity to speak to Israelis about Ben Gvir. And it was amazing to hear um, the kind of support that Ben Gvir is winning really? with many Israelis. Think about this. His party um, is going to win, and again, it's not only his, but he's a, a very prominent and loud voice within that party. He is the image of that party in many ways may win uh, close to 13, 13 mark, 13 seats in the Knesset, more than Benny Gantz's party that now stands in the polls at around 12. He is on par with the former <laughs> chief of staff Isn't of the IDF. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's, it's a reaction to what we've seen. Uh, mainly it's attributable, and I think they're correct, to what Israelis have seen in May of 2021 within the uh, mixed cities in Israel where Arabs and Jews live together. And suddenly a lot of Israelis saw an image of Arabs rising against Jew Jewish residents, attacking apartments of Jews, targeting properties, stores and cars of Jews. And um, Ben Gvir has been a very strong voice against, you know, those um, Arabs, those terrorists, and a lot of um, uh, demanding, for instance, uh, the death penalty to terrorists, demanding to banish or revoke Israeli citizenship from families of terrorists, uh, Israeli uh, Arab terrorists who perpetrated acts or killed Israelis. And a lot of Israelis, and many young Israelis, are um, find these demands to be justified. I can tell you that Ben Gvir attended a lecture at a prominent high school in central Israel, in the city of Ramat Gan, which is supposed to be, you know, elitist, and you can imagine affluent suburb of Tel Aviv, and yet he was accepted like a hero. Many of the uh, many of the high schoolers accompanied him with song and dance. Now, to tell you that that doesn't give Netanyahu a tummy ache, it does. Shachar, does this indicate a movement to the right by the Israeli electorate in general? Well, I think um, all in all, when you look into, uh, in the Knesset map, not just now, but in the past years, you can see that the majority of the Israeli public is center-center-right, especially after the collapse of the Oslo Accords. If you remember, then Prime Minister Barak came out with a statement after the Camp David negotiations with Arafat and said, there is no partner on the other side. It, like. Abba Ibn said the Palestinians haven't missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity and they have continuously proven to the world and to the Israeli public specifically that they're not willing to acknowledge Jewish existence in Israel. We've seen it continuously and we've seen it in Gaza. Look at what happened in Gaza. We always go back to Gaza, not just in the sense of an operation, but the Palestinians have been given a territory in the hope that it will become Singapore of the Middle East. And they turned it into the hellhole of the Middle East, showing the world what they can't manage their own territory. And the Israeli public, beyond any international fora, beyond any international, any foreign government, they read those messages very well. And until we see a different approach coming from that side, um, 80 to 83 seats in the Knesset are center, center right, okay. which leads you to this, Mark. So how come Israel doesn't have a stable government? If 80 to 83 seats in the Knesset are center, center right, it should be easy to have a government. And the answer is not A, but B, B. It's Bibi. It's because of that personal question. The question isn't right or left in Israel. The Israeli public has already determined center, center, right. It's Netanyahu. Are you with Netanyahu? Even the blocks themselves are referred to the pro-Netanyahu block and the anti-Netanyahu block. That's where we're at. And it's a, it's a stalemate. Okay. I want to pick up, pick up something you just said. 
Um, I want you to just tell us where Yair Lapid is now. But Yair Lapid went to the United Nations. And at the United Nations, he gave a speech in which he said, Israel, uh, as far as he was concerned, Israel is ready for a two-state solution if only there were a partner on the other side. So I'm asking you two questions. Number one, where is Lapid in general in this upcoming election? And what's your sense of that speech at the UN? And in terms of what you just said, I think it's so obvious. There are many people who believe the just thing for the entire region would be a two-state solution. But Israel is not going to do one, and American Jews basically are not going to support it unless we believe there's an interlocutor on the other side. And what Lapid said was, there's one condition. We want a two-state solution, but the Palestinian state must be peaceful. Well, you know, that's all. You've just ruled it out. But anyway, and, and, uh, what's Netanyahu, your of this? Netanyahu said the same when you think about the Bar-Ilan speech of 2009. That's Demilitarized Palestinian state. So let's look at Lapid for a minute and let's check out that statement. First of all, where does Lapid stand? Lapid's party, Yeshatid, continues to grow significantly, by the way, from 20 to 21 to 22 to 23. Last polls revolve around 25, 26 seats. Not so far from Netanyahu, who stands at around 31, 32. So he's definitely the most prominent opposition to Netanyahu. He's also more comfortable in a way because uh, for the first time, he's approaching the elections as prime minister and not head of opposition. And Netanyahu, even though we always talk about Netanyahu, he is the head of opposition and not the prime minister. So we've seen an, a slight increase in Lapid's power. Lapid is actually, um, uh, he actually intends to visit the city of Nazareth very soon to kind of like awaken the Arab vote so that more Arabs choose to vote because he understands that any vote that comes through there increases the power of the anti-Netanyahu bloc. And, and what you just mentioned about Lapid's statement at the UN is a great example of what happened, what's happening in the Israeli um, elections. He made a statement. So supposedly, you should have had a discussion in Israel, where do you stand on the issue with the Palestinians? Is there going to be peace? Who supports peace? And yet the discussion went back to, Lapid said it, Netanyahu said it, Netanyahu shouldn't, he won't do it, he didn't do it, are you for Netanyahu, are you against Netanyahu? So again, even though we had an opportunity to discuss an issue, the issue was never discussed. It went immediately back to pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu. And that is a sad state of affairs for us now because we can't overcome, we can't just get over this issue of yes, BB, no, BB. Now, when it comes to the actual statement, there was nothing controversial about what Lapid said. Right. He just repeated and echoed the same position. And like you say, I'm happy to have peace with a demilitarized Palestinian state that's willing to acknowledge the state of Israel with security guarantees. Great, let's do it. Now, do we have a partner on the other side? No. No. And until we do so, it's not a matter for, you know, support or debate. Israelis open their windows, and out the window, that's what they see. They see the Palestinian territories, the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. It's right there. It's like a 15-minute drive. We're not going to commit suicide. Israelis have learned the Gaza lesson very well. Mm -hmm. And the Palestinians have done well to undermine their cause of independence, but by turning 
Gaza into the hellhole that it has become, not just for us, but for millions of Palestinians there. So at some point, some responsibility has to be taken by Palestinians for Palestinians okay. to be able to have sovereignty. I want this to be said because there's another topic and it'll just bring us practically to the end of the program. Right. Already? No, we've just hey, begun, Mark. I know, you're wonderful. <laughs> At the moment, it looks like Benjamin Netanyahu is going to win with Likud 60 to 61 seats, right? Some polls are at 59. Yes, it's 58. True. And yes. that one vote will, will mean the world. And even that one vote, okay. Mark. But I'm asking you. Oh, he I stands always, a better chance. Okay. He stands a better chance at no, gaining some majority. Good, that's not good enough for me. I want to hear what Chuck Harazani's prediction is vis a vis Bibi Netanyahu. It's, you know, we say that. Um, Post the destruction of the temple, prophecy is given to fools. Oh, no, 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 but no, no, I'll no, tell no. You, But I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this. His block is much more galvanized. It's a stronger block. Um, the allegiance that they all swear is to Netanyahu. There is less friction within his block. Um, based on that and his intimate understanding of the machinations of Israeli politics, which was evident in the example you just shared with the, with the image, it makes sense that Netanyahu will gain 61 seats. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can see that happening because for him, it really is a battle of to be or not to be. Imagine a scenario where the Haredis are fed up with being away from government for such a long time under Lapid. They were part of the opposition. They need to be part of the government to support their public. And they're likely to be included. And if Netanyahu doesn't gain the majority and Lapid goes again to establish a another government, I don't know that they're going to be very patient with Netanyahu again. And even within Likud, there are questions asked about some members of Likud who may not be very happy to be dragged to a sixth round of election. At the same time, allow me to take you down one more step in that rabbit hole. Assuming Netanyahu wins the 61 votes. Part of the 61 is Ben Gvir, the Jewish Power Party. The Jewish Power Party just announced the other day that part of their platform is to take away from the law books part of the offenses that Netanyahu is being charged with right now in court, part of their agenda. Now Netanyahu, the, his adversaries always claim that his goal in the election is to win his court case and he wants to do so from the position of prime minister. Their statement at the moment is a blow to Netanyahu because he's trying to stay away from, the, from his court cases. So is there a scenario where 61 votes, including Jewish power, is going to be a potential coalition. But at that point, Netanyahu picks up the phone and calls one Benny Gantz and says, Benny, listen, I need you to join my government. I know we've had our issues and experiences together, but I promise now I'll behave. Because if you don't join me, I'm going to have to go with Ben Gvir. And you have the opportunity to save the state of Israel from the ultra-right by joining my government, will you do so? Oh my. Okay, we're going to watch and see. All right, one more issue that is very important for you to speak to. In the last coalition government, there were Arabs sitting in the government, something which at one point people thought would never happen. Okay, the Arab 
parties overall, there's been some evolution. Ooh. Speak for a few minutes about what has happened to that block. What do you think will happen in this election, Shaharazani? So first of all, I just want to say that in, in my upcoming JBS trip to Israel for the elections, that's one of the you issues. You gave it away. That's one of the issues you I want to explore. Away. I gave it By away. By the way, I told you I had a very <laughs> exciting announcement. Shaharazani will be going to Israel at the time of the elections. He'll be doing programming for us all the time with people who are involved and with tangential people. And it's a very exciting thing for us. To, we've never done this before. Shachar Azani will be representing the JBS in Israel during the elections. And by the way, you'll vote. Absolutely, you'll also I vote. will, absolutely. Anyway, go ahead. So talking about the Arab parties for a minute. First of all, I want to take us to a certain point in ancient Israeli history in the year of 2020, when the joint Arab list gained 15 seats in the Knesset, 1-5. Imagine, out of 120 seats, the Arabs hold 15. It's huge power. Each member of Knesset office comes with, you know, chambers and assistants and budgets and connections and, 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 and influence. And it's incredible. This was the peak of Arab power. And then as the elections progressed, you were talking about an evolution. We had the first major a revolution in Israel when it came to participation of you know Arabs in the Israeli political system and that was with Mansour Abbas the United Arab List mm -hmm. the Islamic movement of southern Israel and Abbas decided no longer am I going to sit on the outside of Israeli politics I want to have an in so that I can influence politics gain budgets for my public uh, support the issues as it comes to you know the criminal issues in in my sector the the crime levels I want to play a part. And for the first time, you had an Arab party who wasn't just sitting on the side coming, you know, to abstain at best on certain votes, but actively participating in the government. The first person who opened that door was Benjamin Netanyahu, who engaged with Mansour Abbas. I'll never forget the, the media surprise when the prime minister decided to show up at the time, Netanyahu, to a discussion chaired by Mansour Abbas in the Knesset about crime in the Arab sector. And everybody asked themselves, what is Netanyahu doing there? What is Netanyahu doing there? How come the prime minister is coming? So it evolved into Mansour Abbas's participation in the last coalition uh, government. He wasn't a minister, but he was part, actively part of the coalition. At some point, working to ensure that the uh, West Bank legislation, emergency law, is enacted, by the way, trying to pass it in the Knesset while the ultra-right wing was working against him. But then something happens in this, uh, in this second evolution. The joint Arab list, now the United Arabs, Mansour Abbas left them. Now you have the joint Arab list that is composed of three Arab parties. One is a commun communist radical leftist. One is the more centrist secular party of Ahmad Tibi, who used to advise to Yasser Arafat. And a third one called the National Democratic Alliance, mm -hmm. Balad. The National Democratic Alliance is an extremist party within the Arab public. It's a party that negates the Jewish nature of Israel, that objects to the Zionist characterization of Israel. The founder of the party, Dr. Azmi Bishara, back in the mid-90s when he established Balad, 10 years later, during the Second Lebanon War, he transmits information to Hezbollah, 
where the missiles are falling so that they can better target them into Israel. That's the level of personalities we're talking about. One of their members of Knesset smuggled cell phones to uh, Palestinian terrorists in Israeli prisons using his position as a... So we're talking about a very controversial party. So they're supposed to run along with the, the block of the joint Arab list without Mansour Abbas. Then two minutes, two minutes before they close down the lists, they decide we're going to run on our own. We're going to run separately from the joint Arab list. So the joint Arab list, out of four parties, now you only have two, whereas Mansour Abbas is running separately and Balad is running separately. Why is that super important? Because Balad right now stands at around maybe 80,000 votes. 80,000 votes is not going to be enough to pass the electoral threshold, which means that they're not going to be represented in the Knesset, which also means that their votes, even legitimate and kosher, are going to be subtracted. You remember that math lesson? Subtracted from the overall number used to divide by 120 and get the number of seats you need. So, if you vote Balad, you may have voted Ben Gvir in or Benjamin Netanyahu in. And that combined with the overall indifference in the, Israeli pub, in the Arab-Israeli public that right now seems to be at its lowest point may bring about um, a victory to the Netanyahu, the pro-Netanyahu bloc. Some estimate that even 63 uh, majority um, in the Knesset. So you never know which way it's going to work. And then Why I go, would Balad do this? <coughs> it seems to be against their self-interest. Oh, goodness me. Ego? <laughs> Can it really play a part within the Arab parties? Yes, a lot of ego. And uh, disagreements, because for instance, while um, some of the Arab leaders said never Netanyahu, the leader of Balad, again, anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish party, says, I don't care about Netanyahu. I care about my policies whether it's, you know, end the occupation, uh, a state of all of its citizens. So some people read it as, I'm not really against Netanyahu. So if there is a way to collaborate with Netanyahu, I'm willing to collaborate. Now here is another image. Just let me give you this one, Mark. The Central Election Committee, when you look into the Balad platform, you understand that it really is contradictory to the very existence of Israel. Should a country allow such a party to run in the elections? So the, it's within the power of the Central Election Committee, headed by a Supreme Court Justice, to look into the matter. And every election, the ballot issue comes before the Justice. And they're saying they shouldn't be able to run. So when, and and the, the parties are supposed to vote on it, and the Chief Justice, the Justice gives his ruling, and then it goes into the Supreme Court. What do I want to say? I want to say that during that specific debate about ballot, who didn't show up? to argue against Balad, the right wing. Usually the right wing is the first to come and, 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 and make the claim against such a party. Suddenly they're not. Why? Because it's a matter of numbers. Mm -hmm. If they run, they cost votes to mm -hmm. the anti-Netanyahu bloc, which is good for us. Some people claim it's inappropriate, that you should have a position in principle. But this is the practicalities of the Israeli political machination, Mark. Fabulous, fabulous. Okay, real quick. <laughs> Really, 30 seconds. Where's Benny Gantz now? Safe and secure with 12 seats. Really? He, he's, not, he's focusing okay. on his role as Mr. Security of Israel. Okay. 
Naftali Bennett and Avigdor Lieberman. Um, Avigdor Lieberman struggles to redefine his role as many of his voters are Russians in Israel and slowly as time passes more and more Russian Jews are integrated into existing parties but he now stands at the electoral threshold of around four, five, six. He of course is secure that he's going to get more but reality is that he's shrinking and Naftali Bennett I asked the same question, where is he? <laughs> I think he, he just chose to, chose to take a time out, but not really. Because you hear his voice every once in a while, but he's definitely okay. not prominent. Giron Saar. Um, joined Benny Gantz. So together, um, the sum of both of their uh, parties gave exactly the amount. It, didn't, it wasn't able to breach that boundary. Okay. Ayelet Shaked. Ooh, we haven't even touched on Ayelet. <laughs> Ayelet Shaked is actually fighting to survive the electoral threshold. Netanyahu is fighting against her because he believes she's taking away votes from his camp. She says, if I win, I will guarantee a Netanyahu uh, coalition government. I promise, she says, I will go with Netanyahu. But if religious Zionists need a home, it shouldn't be Ben Gvir, it should be me heading the Jewish Home Party. Netanyahu is fighting against her. Why? Some people say, don't tell anyone, that it's because Sarah that can't stand her. Even though, politically, it may make sense for Netanyahu to donate a seat or two for Shaked so that she gets four and gives him the majority, it doesn't Unbelievable. happen. Unbelievable. <laughs> Shas and United Torah Judaism. As Haredis go, they are safe and secure <laughs> in where they... Even though some of them have been bleeding seats for Ben Gvir, but usually they're the staunchest allies of Netanyahu, and, you know, their public is very disciplined. Okay. Bottom line is, and you've said this over and over again, and you've said it so well, in Israel, Israeli politics are still driven by Bibi Netanyahu. Right now. Fifth round. Fifth round of what? What makes this a fifth round? A fifth round of the discussion of pro-Bibi or anti-Bibi. And this round, because of indifference and the electoral threshold, is going to be won or lost by a fraction of a percentage. Isn't he wonderful? And by the way, you know, I say this every now and then. There are things you will hear on JBS you won't hear anywhere else. I don't know where else you could hear the kind of analysis of the Israeli political landscape that you've hear, heard here from Shahar Azami. Thank you, my friend. Now, I love you so much. Such a and pleasure. And you do a fabulous job. Amazing. A fabulous job. And our trip is going to be amazing. Yes, and again, he is heading out to the state of Israel just before the election, and he'll be there, and he'll be sending reports back to you, and we are most, most grateful. Of course, I'd love to hear your thoughts regarding this edition of In the News with Shachar Azami. Please be in touch with me by email at rabbigalov at jbstv.org or write me at P.O. Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. I love hearing from you. My thanks, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland. Thanks also to production coordinator, Serge Goldberg. Thanks to JBS's managing director, Dara Golub. And thanks to JBS's senior producer, Carol Lilienthal. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. Be well, my friends.